Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career.academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. By the way, K-Cups come in three sizes, single, double, and triple shots, or roughly one minute, five minutes, or 10 minutes in length. So if you don't have time to throw back an entire caffeinated career conversation, these K-Cup mini episodes of T4C can give you a quick caffeinated fix, whether you're on the go or you only have a few minutes to binge. So grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for a caffeinated career triple shot K-Cup with my guest, Galit Lahav. I want you to know, as I was preparing for this interview, I started learning about the research that you're, <laughs> the air that you breathe every day known as systems biology, which I believe became an approach not that long ago in about the year 2000. And it uses the power of systems thinking, and we'll get into that, across traditional disciplinary boundaries. But would you be kind enough, Dr. Love, to elaborate a bit more to kind of tease out how it works and why this field even exists? Yes, of course. So you're right. This is a relatively new field in the beginning of early 2000. And actually, the department that I'm in was the first department in the world, the first systems biology department in the world. And now, of course, there are many, many more. And so the idea is that all systems across biology, they share a same what we call design principles, whether it's the human body or, or a plant or a microbe. And so if we want to understand how things operate why disease emerge or how to treat disease, we need to look at the complex interactions of many signaling pathways and identify those principles, those mechanisms in a quantitative way. And so to do that, we have to merge biology and medicine with other disciplines such as engineering and physics and math and computer science and use them to very accurately understand how our body operates and predict how it will operate under different conditions or disease or health conditions and uh, or treatments. Love it. Now, at your lab at Harvard Medical School, your 
Systems Biology Lab, where you are the Novartis Professor of Systems Biology and the Chair of the Department. You've been doing some absolutely fascinating research into why individual human cancer cells often show different responses to the same treatment. And that is so that you can actually identify new therapies to increase the likelihood that anti-cancer drugs will be more effective. Is that an accurate overview? That's a very accurate overview. It's exactly right. What we do, we take cancer cells and we treat them with anti-cancer drugs or radiation. And many times we see that even though they're all identical, they behave differently. Like some of them will die and respond to the treatment and some will survive or some will stop grow for a certain amount of time and then continue to grow. So we're very very interested in kind of going into the decision making of each individual cell and understand why it, it varies so much and how we can control it. And it involved you actually pioneering new approaches for quantifying the behavior of what's known as P53, which is a protein in single living cells. Can you elaborate on why P53, why this protein is so important? Yes. Um, so P53, it's called the guardian of the genome, right? It's, it's, it's one of the most important gene that makes sure that cancer does not develop. And in many types of cancer, P53 itself is mutated. And the reason is that when our cells acquire mutations or damage to their DNA, P53 levels go up and then it makes a decision whether the damage can be repaired and this cell can survive or the damage is just too much for the cell and that's cell will die, which eventually will save the entire organism because getting rid of, of harmful bad cells, right? And so when P53 is not doing its function, those bad cells can proliferate and develop into, into tumors. And so you're absolutely right. One of the main approach that we pioneered is to fuse a fluorescent protein, a protein that shine that we took from jellyfish to P53. And now we have a little flag, a little light, you know, fluorescent flag in each cell that we can see what P53 is doing in each cell in response to the treatment and connect that with the final outcome of the cells and then we can control it and change it and it's beautiful and a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, you took a cell from a jellyfish as a way to have like a little flashlight on each? Yeah, it's, it's a gene called green fluorescent protein. It has been widely used in microbes and we were the first ones around in early 2000 to fuse it to a human gene and create videos in real time of how P53 fused to this fluorescent gene behaves in human cells. So most studies prior to your work were kind of looking at many cells together. Right. But what you did, the pioneering work you did was to focus on a single P53. How is that different from other research that happens in laboratories like at NIH and others that may not necessarily be systems oriented? You're absolutely right. Prior to our work, everyone that looked at P53, they just took hundreds or thousands of millions of cells together and then averaged their collective behavior. Now, the problem with that is that imagine that 99% of the cells behave in a certain way, but then 1% of cells do something a little crazy, right? When you average the collective behavior, there's no way you can identify these weird, crazy outlier cells. And when you study cancer, that's really important because cancer emerges 
emerge from sometimes one crazy cell. And also sometimes you have group of cells that behave differently. Like I can tell you in our case, we discovered that P53 oscillates in cells, but the oscillations are not synchronous between cells. So when you look at the collective average behavior, it's very easy to miss them, but only when you look at individual cells, you can see them. And so I think in the last 20 years, it has become really important to look at individual cells and across many, many fields of biology and medicine. So now there's quite a lot of research beyond P53 on many other pathways in biology, developing tools to look at how individual cells behave. So how does taking a systems approach to looking at a single P53 cell work? So well, we, when we collect these movies of P53 from hundreds and thousands of cells, we get trajectories of their dynamics over time. And these are messy and complicated. And then we need to bring tools from math in order to create mathematical modeling and complicated statistical analysis to extract features and principles from these dynamics. Like I mentioned, the oscillations, we are working toward understanding what's critical in these dynamics. Do cells read the frequency of the oscillation? Do they read the amplitude? Do they read the integrative level? And to understand how information flows from proteins that regulate P53 and downstream to what P53 regulates. And so collectively understanding the system through capturing thousands of different dynamical behavior of P53. So what are you doing right now in the lab? And actually, are you even in the lab in the middle of the coronavirus? We're doing this interview at the end of January 2021. Are your fellow colleagues able to even be there in the laboratory? Yeah, great, great question. So I now have a research lab of about 12 people, including students and postdocs. Most of them are doing experimental work. So yes, they are going to the lab to do the work because they need to be able to have access to materials and instruments. Some of them are doing more theoretical computational work. So they work from home. I have not been in the lab for you know, a very long time. All the work I do, I do from home. So a big part of my work work is to mentor the people in my lab, to help design experiment, to go through data, to decide about the next experiment. So we do all of this virtually right now. So they do the bench work and then we meet and brainstorm and do all the thinking through screens, which is way less fun. Thanks for tuning in to this K-Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.